0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Podrig Otuma is my guest today. Podrig grew up outside of Cork in the south of Ireland. He spent a long time not quite knowing where he fitted. He loved poetry and prayer and talking to people. Maybe he should become a priest. But Podrig also knew that he was gay and for a long time he couldn't work out how all those things could be true at the same time. Podrick found a way into being himself, partly through stories, because stories are a kind of knowing where many different truths all exist at once, and where the heart of the thing matters as much as the head. Podrick now lives and works in Belfast, where he's helped many groups of people learn to listen to each other's stories. He's also the host of the podcast Poetry Unbound, and his new book is an anthology of 50 poems, also called Poetry Unbound. Hello, Podrick.
0: Hi, Sarah.
1: You work with groups of people in in lots of different settings, and I know you often begin by asking them the question, if right now you were to write the story of your life, what would the first sentence be? So tell me that. What's the first sentence for you?
0: I always wanted to believe in home. That's the first sentence today. I always wanted to believe in home. Six words, I think. Seven. Seven. <laughs> <laughs> I was counting up my fingers. Is that,
1: is that a question is, or is that a first line that might change depending on the oh, day? Oh,
0: yeah. oh my. The day, the minute. Yeah, I think you begin um, your story uh, from a different point of view uh, depending as to who you're talking to, as to whether you know the person or not, what's happening during the day. How much tea or coffee I've had. <laughs>
1: well, tell me a little bit about the home that you grew up in. How many kids in your family?
0: I am number three of six. Uh, there's kind of, we're in two batches. There's a batch of three, kind of born within four and a half years of each other. Then there's a gap of six years. And then there's another batch.
1: And do you all have magnificent Irish names we like do. yours?
0: Yeah, Anya, Sean, Padraig, Kira, Maeve and Neil.
1: Tell yeah. me about uh, your younger sister's reaction to finding out the origin of of her name.
0: Oh yeah, well uh, Queen Maeve um, was a notorious queen, and um, she uh, was told that she would have a son called Aya who would murder her arch enemy. So she had seven sons and gave them all the same name. And <laughs> That's so she brilliant. was a, she was a wild, powerful woman. And so yeah, lots of people with the name Maeve are delighted to know that um that old, old, magnificent name. Carries with it uh, a, a powerful legacy.
1: <laughs> so I'm guessing that Irishness and Irish identity was important to your mum and dad.
0: Well, yes, I mean it. It, it was so important because it kind of didn't feel like there was any other option. Do you know, um, my dad is a great Iland piper. You know the the Irish pipes, not the bagpipes. The Ilan pipes. They're a bit softer and sweeter. Um, but I, I like to think so. Anyway, <laughs> maybe Scot- Scottish Scot- people Scot- would disagree. Um, and. Uh, yeah, so he plays the tin whistle and the ill and pipes and Irish language is important to them both and kind of music and poetry and culture. All of those things were um, really important growing up, going along to Irish dancing during the week. And yeah, all of us play instruments. And yeah, it was very do important. Do you play
1: the tin whistle too or what's I yours? I was
0: terrible at the tin whistle. I picked up the guitar when I was 11. I've, I still play. I, I mean, I, pay, I play a bit of Celtic music on the guitar, so I do play a bit of traditional music there. But obviously the guitar isn't an Irish instrument at all.
1: Tell me about the, the neighbour who helped teach you the
0: Irish language. Yeah, my mother was sick when I was younger. And so there was a woman a couple of doors down and she um, had no English at all, really. Um, she came up from Dingle, or in fact, not even Dingle, the Dingle Peninsula, Bally near Théirig, you you'd say that in English. And she was up in Cork City and uh, she looked after me for a few years, just for three or four hours a day. And so by the stage that I got to primary school, I'd heard her speaking to me um, in gorgeous, fluent Irish for a few hours a day for those few years. So I arrived in primary school not knowing I was bilingual and uh, really not knowing that there were two languages in me Um, On the first day of school, I remember our teacher, I do have a vivid memory of this, the teacher said, I'm going to teach you some words in a new language. You won't understand them, but just repeat after me. So the teacher was trying to introduce the concept of new language. And I was confused because everything the teacher said in any language I understood. (laughs) And I thought something was wrong with me. You didn't Um,
1: think you had a superpower?
0: No, no, I thought there was something terribly wrong with me. Um story of my life. <laughs> and so uh yeah, I, I owe her an extraordinary debt. I thought she was two hundred years old. Apparently she was sixty. I'll <laughs> be sixty in twelve years, so it's not too far off. Um, but yeah, she was um, she taught me so much. Banatee, I called her, woman of the house. It's kind of a landlady, I suppose you'd render that into English. I feel like I my love of language came from having been bilingual at an early age and having been curious when eventually I could realise, oh, there are these two languages and I happen to speak them both. I think that, uh, that helped. And I was curious, I mean, it was an introduction to politics too, because apparently I asked my parents when I was five, why don't we speak Irish all the time? And like, what do you say to a five-year-old about, well, let's talk about history, let's talk about Britain, let's talk about our nearest neighbours. You know, that's a very complicated thing to introduce to a five-year-old, but it it kind of introduced the fact that language is always political to me as well.
1: What are the biggest differences uh, between the two languages that you, you you know you've spoken them now really since your your earliest days of speaking? Do they have a different sensibility Irish mm. and English?
0: Well, I sh- I suppose I sh- should speak from my own experience of speaking that I my way of speaking in Irish is much more concrete than um it is in English. English I suppose can lend itself to abstractions whereas Irish is a very concrete language. So here's a a very poetic example, which is that one way to say I trust you in Irish is Hmm. You are the place where I stand on the day when my feet are sore. Now, you wouldn't be saying that to everybody every day, but it is a kind of a particularly powerful and also poetic way to describe a profound sense of trust. And another way of communicating deep love is to say You are my music. And so there's gorgeous ways of, of that. Um, I mean, English has got beautiful phrases too, but there's something about making reference to, to concrete examples that I know I turn to that in Irish.
1: Is it a language that has a way of being embedded in the landscape of oh, the country?
0: Yeah. yeah, of course. I mean, there's, uh, there's a recent book out called um, 32 Words for Field because there's so many... I mean, this is, again, I don't want to make it out like Irish is unique in this. Any language that is particular to a particular place has all the contours there so what one group might call grey other people will say oh no there's all kinds of shades of grey and they'll have that you know you find that in Icelandic you find that in loads of languages around the world in Farsi etc but um, I I do love the ways of describing weather in Irish ways of describing field ways of describing water yeah Hmm. all of those kinds of things
1: what about ways of describing God when you (laughs) read the gospel in in Irish is it a, a different experience than in English?
0: Um, it's different because I feel a little bit like it's a slightly less colonised experience for me in reading the Gospels in Irish. I mean, I don't come to them as a believer. I come to them as somebody who loves language and somebody who was curious about the Gospels. And I suppose the Gospels have been so tainted for me by recruitment agendas and people saying, here's what it means and this is how it should be interpreted. Um, but that's very, very rarely been in Irish. It's usually been in English or in French. And so when I read them in Irish, I do feel like I'm able to have my own private relationship with them without too many associations of people shouting about them in Irish.
1: When you were, were nine or so, you learnt an Irish poem at school that compares being a poet to being a tree. Can mm. you recite a little of that poem? Yeah,
0: yeah. Úignaoc crown le loran me chile, har As lonely as a tree is in the middle of the woods, so is a poet among the people. I, I like I, I remember reading that line, Be the Crown is the name of the poem by Martino Diron, Be Like a Tree. And it's an instruction to himself. It's a strange instruction instruction to himself to be a man, to be a poet. He has deep anxiety about his masculinity as a poet. Um at one point he says, You're like half a woman, you know, there's this anxious idea about having feeling. It's I mean the poem's a hundred years old. It's a very dated poem in terms of its imagination of gender. But you can also hear a profound sense of um, self consciousness in him. And I read that poem at that, and I remember reading it and loving that stanza and knowing immediately I'd never forget it. And there it is, it's on the tip of my tongue all the time. I don't even necessarily think it's true. Partly it's just the music of it I love. And Úigniuch is the word for lonely, but it's also the word for grave. And so there's an idea that loneliness is the taste of death. Uh, the foretaste of death in a certain sense. Well, I think there's a great wisdom in that.
1: It's interesting too, isn't it, in that it um, is suggesting that the experience of being a poet or of poetry is one of being in isolation, of aloneness. Yeah. But yeah. It, it seems more often that you come to poetry as a way of connecting and yeah. communicating. Yeah.
0: That's, I mean, most poetry, I think, is written alone, but with an imagination of an audience or a hope of an audience, perhaps. There's a self centredness about that idea too. I mean, to think that, you know, the the poets know something about loneliness that other people don't. I don't think that's true. Um, Lonely people know things about loneliness, whatever, whoever they are, whatever they do, you know, and that can be all of us.
1: What kind of place did poetry have at school for you?
0: Mm. I feel so fortunate. I just went to the local village school, nothing fancy, but from the age of five to 17, we were learning poems off by heart every week in two languages, in Irish and English. And the expectation was that by the end of the year, whatever your small examinations you'd have, you'd just be able to write a small essay about any of the poems that came up. So you had to have them all memorised. And so that is, I, I just thought that was normal. I thought everybody around the world who went to their ordinary school down the road had that experience. And I I did happen to love poetry. So usually the summer before, you know, before you'd start back up in school, I'd have read all the poems that we'd be doing that year. And there were certain ones I'd be looking forward to learning off by heart or some I'd even have started to. And then when I started the guitar at the age of 11, I started to put some of the more complex ones to music and that, that helped me remember them.
1: It's a different way mm. of understanding a poem by memorising it. How is mm. that different than just reading?
0: Well, you ingest it a bit. You, the idea is that it becomes as easy and as natural to you as your own breathing, and so it isn't just that you're like, oh, what's the next line? What's the next line? What's the next line? I forgot that metaphor. If you've really learnt it by heart, I love that phrase in English, off by heart if you've learnt it off by heart, actually you can say it and be thinking about it as you say it. You know, during COVID, um, at back home, we were being told, sing happy birthday to yourself whenever you're washing your hands. Twice, I think we were told, we're like, my God, that's, that's kind of a recipe for insanity, to be sing happy birthday to yourself 20 times a day, you know. So anyway, I didn't do that. Instead, I recited a W.B. Yeats poem that I love and that I learned when I was 11. Do you want me to recite yeah. it? To a child dancing in the wind. Dance there upon the shore, what need you have to care for wind or water's roar, and tumble out your hair that the salt drops of wet Being young you have not known the fool's triumph, Nor yet love lost as soon as one, or the best labourer dead, nor all the sheaves to bind. What need you have to dread the monstrous crying of the wind
1: Thank you. That's better than a happy birthday.
0: Much better. <laughs> and like I I don't even have to reach for those words. Um they're just there. And there's something about that that was such a comfort to be able to say it. And, you know, it's a poem about age. It's a poem about WB Yeats looking at a girl dancing and he's thinking about his own life and thinking she lives in a different Ireland than one, the one he's been in. And it's, it's a poem that holds so much about middle age and, and um, looking at um, time going by. It was such a helpful mm. thing to think about 20 times a day during <laughs> COVID. <laughs>
1: So six kids at home, Padraig, was there a lot of noise? Was it a, a, a kind of chaotic energy at home? How do you remember that? It was
0: only noise. <laughs> Whenever I went to somebody's house where it was quiet and tidy, I was like, what is this strange planet? I had absolutely no idea that um, such thing. I, in fact, I probably didn't believe that it was true. I thought they were just putting on a show. Yeah, So then, and then, you know, my parents, there wasn't a lot of money. But, you know, there was, a, there was never any hesitation if anybody was bringing a pal home from school or whatever, you know.
1: And how did that, I mean, did you enjoy that or were you a, a little kid who was always looking for a, a quiet spot or a, a, a place to be alone? A
0: bit of both. Yeah, sometimes I enjoyed the company, depended as to whether I felt like the people liked me or not, you know, in the usual self-consciousnesses of children. Um, but I also did read a lot, you know, played the guitar a lot. And yeah.
1: Did you have your own room?
0: Uh, I shared with my brother for a long time, and then into teenagerhood, he moved into the utility room. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I did get uh, my own room. Maybe when I was thirteen or something like that.
1: So you were a Catholic family. Did yeah. you go to mass together oh, yeah. as a family?
0: Uh, not quite all together because I don't think we had a car where we could all fit in together. Knowing when you know under certain rules about legality of um, <laughs> about seatbelts, but yeah, I mean we all went to mass every weekend. There was a whole bunch of masses down in the local parish, so. My parents are still daily mass goers. They go every day and went on Zoom during COVID. And yeah, for a long time, I was a daily mass goer as well.
1: And what was the experience of being in church like for you as a child? Did you remember that as a as a, a place, a building you were happy to be in, a space you enjoyed? Uh,
0: yeah, but there was never an option not to be going there every week. You know, it was. But you just, could
1: sit there and be cranky. Or you that's could sit true, there yeah.
0: I joined the folk group when I was 11, and that was an opportunity to bring the guitar and to play, and so I enjoyed that. So I was often involved in the music at Mass. The whole way throughout teenagerhood, really, I was involved in music at Mass.
1: There are some big things to take in uh, if you're raised Catholic as a child. You know, this idea of sin, the idea that you've got to make confession, the presence of Satan and, and of evil... About the same age that you encountered that poem about, um, about the poet and the tree, what rumour went around your class about saying the Our Father backwards?
0: Oh, it was amazing. Um, one of the fellows in the class, I still remember his name, said that if you can say the Our Father backwards while you look in the mirror... The mirror image will turn into the face of Satan and Oliver that was his name he, he said he saw it, and Oliver then he did it he Try did it. it he did it, and then he threw up and, <laughs> and, he uh, threw and up. <laughs> me, me and my friend Gavin walked the whole way home to, um, a mile and a half or two miles. Walk the whole way home saying Hail Marys over and over again, like like desperate children. There's I mean,
1: something it, so brilliantly specific about the instructions, like there's a kind know, of genius in I that, know. isn't it?
0: But th- I mean, that is the genius of it. It isn't just like looking one way or it's something <laughs> weird. It's just and it's saying something backwards is very difficult, and that's the thing to to have the the capacity to say a full prayer like that backwards is difficult. My parents, I had begged for a Bible when I was ten or eleven. And so my parents had gotten me a children's Bible and the first thing I did was to look through it to see was there a picture of the devil. And there was. He's sky blue and he has a convenient tail for spotting him among the people. <laughs> and he has fiery red eyes. And I was fascinated by this picture of the devil.
1: Was that, by the time that you were growing up, was there still an emphasis on on that side of, of Christianity, on sin and on evil and on um, guilt?
0: In the, in the Irish Catholicism uh, of the local parish, it was actually very mild. Um, stuff about you know make sure you do your confession and get the questions right for the bishop that kind of authoritarian thing but that it was relatively mild there was a I can't remember any sermons from the priests about hell or the devil or anything like that it was when I got involved in later teenage years and middle teenage years in ecumenical charismatic Christianity then Satan came in with great festival and fanfare.
1: Did you have much to do with Protestants as as a child?
0: I was intrigued by Protestants, always intrigued by them. Um, at the age of 11, I started to go to these summer camps. And my mother, there was a lovely woman called Bernie, who I believe moved to Australia. She was a nurse. She was a, a kind of a youth worker on these summer camps. And my mother said to me, I thought Bernie was a brilliant, absolutely lovely. And then my mother said to me, you know, she's Protestant and you know, they're wrong. And I felt so sad for poor Bernie being wrong. I mean, I didn't know what she was wrong about. I was 11, but she was existentially, ontologically wrong. And I was 11, apparently, because I was born into the right tribe. I was grand. But I met other people too, you know, people who changed my life. A lovely man, Aldo Magliacco, who was a youth leader at that stage, Italian family, but brought up in Belfast. Great, ecumenical man of kindness and goodness. another guy, Glenn Jordan, who became a dear and beloved, beloved friend. We co-wrote a book together. Hmm.
1: Growing up in in Ireland in those years, in the 70s and 80s, can you remember a a moment or an event where you realised, ah, being homosexual is bad?
0: Well, I mean, I was in a boys' school for primary school, so up until the age of 12 or so, and so it was just kind of being called a girl, being called a faggot. That was that was just absolutely part of every single day, really. And so, um, I and I was definitely being called that all the time. Um, maybe because I like poetry, particularly, or because I like gymnastics, or because of. Well, it didn't really matter. You could laugh the wrong way one day and be called like that. And so, yeah, I always knew. So the 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 term homosexual or gay or faggot or any of those things. All of those had negative connotations without even knowing what they meant, you know. And then around the time of puberty, when it began to, in a very limited, awkward way, understand sexuality, I began to go, oh God, I am what they say I am.
1: So there was no gap really between the sense of who you are and the sense that it's the wrong way to be?
0: Not at all. No, it was just immediate. Yeah. And that was societal. That's the thing. I didn't hear, I very rarely heard it in the Catholic parish point of view, I very, very rarely heard anything said. It was implied that there was something wrong about that, but it was really in the ecumenical, evangelical, charismatic world where I heard the kind of, you're going to hell <laughs> side of things.
1: When did you sort of first say out loud to yourself this mm. truth about yourself?
0: Well, I always knew it. Um, I suppose I must have been, I remember, I think I was about 15, 16. I waited until the house was entirely quiet, um, which is very rare, Um Uh, and I remember sitting in the bedroom and trying to say I am a homosexual to myself, just trying to say it like that. That was the only language I had, you know. This was the early 90s, um, and I couldn't. I I remember how thick my tongue felt and how empty my mouth felt at the same time uh, to just say those words out loud because there's something about putting something into language that um, makes something true, and it was too much. Much and all as I knew it.
1: After after finishing high school, you joined a, a Christian organisation. Yeah. What kind of work did they do? What attracted you to to join that?
0: Well, um, I was al- I've was i always been interested in people. I, still, I do love meeting people. And so I thought, oh, I'll become a doctor. I'm from a scientific family, you know, much in all as the language and culture are absolutely part of it. Both my parents left school at the age of 13. And my father worked in the physics department of the university as a technician. And the only options for all six of us really were study science and get a job in industry like absolutely there was never a science religion debate in the house they were side by side absolutely and so I thought well the science that I think I might be good at could be medicine because I like people anyway I did well at the final exams but not well enough to get in the medical course. So I heard of this organisation that did youth work in parishes and um, there was an opportunity maybe to go overseas and do Catholic youth work and ecumenical youth work too. I was very interested in Catholic Protestant dialogue and so I went and I joined this organisation up in Dublin in 1993.
1: And when you, when you joined, Podrick, you had to tick a series of yeah. boxes mm-hmm. or there was a, a questionnaire. Tell me about, about what was required for you when you, when yeah. you joined up. Well,
0: it was the place where you lived, where you worked in a big kind of tumble of, of ecumenical Christian community, international ecumenical Christian community. And, uh, you know, the, the application form asked questions about, you know, what's your faith journey been like and have you ever travelled and, you know, etc. You're used to being around people of different points of view. Very ordinary and good questions, asked for a couple of references. But then there was a point when it said, have you ever been involved with the following? And there was four boxes. I'll try to remember if I have the four boxes right. It was um, occultism, alcoholism, drug addiction or homosexuality. And I was 17, actually, when I was filling that in. I wasn't quite 18. And I saw the homosexuality box and thought, oh, my God. Um, So I just thought they'll never have me, you know. But
1: You didn't consider not ticking it.
0: I know. Why didn't I lie? I I wonder that all the time. Why didn't I lie? I, I should have in many ways, or I should have looked for other options. But I did need to get away from home. And that was the only option I felt like I had. And lying didn't seem like an option to me. So I did tick it and... You know, it gave you two lines to fill in, you know, to explain yourself. So I did that. And then the first week when I, you know, they accepted me. Uh, And then the first week when I joined, there there was an exorcism arranged for me.
1: Um, Did you expect that? Like, was no, that...
0: that was a surprise. But <laughs> <laughs> well, years later, I realised to go. Of course, somebody had told this person who was the exorcist from a woman from California. You know, the whole thing was a setup because she came to me and she said to me, "There's something that you're carrying that you have to tell us about that we need to deal with because the devil's got his hand on your shoulder." I mean, this was madness to me, and at the same time, what are you supposed to do? She was coming across like some kind of authority. So um, then she screamed at the devil and me, and.
1: and I mean, that's such an extreme experience to go through. Were there other people around you or was it just you and her? No,
0: no, no. There was about 20 people in the room. Yeah.
1: And how do you remember experiencing that at the time?
0: Well, just shame because suddenly you're outed, you know, because she's screaming at the demon of homosexuality. Um, So suddenly there's a lot of information being communicated in the room. A, that you've got a devil in you and B, that it's a gay one you know. Now I look back and think, of course I didn't have a devil in me. That's absolutely straightforward. Um, but now I look back and I think, actually telling somebody that they have a devil in them puts a devil in them. And that, that that another way within which language has to be carefully curated. The things we say to people actually can create something. And we hope it can create something f- fruitful, but that was not fruitful.
1: Oh, well, there's a story in the Gospel of Mark about the casting out of devils. Yeah. There's this outcast man who all day long is, he's howling, he's gashing himself with rocks, and then Jesus turns up. Mm. What happens next?
0: That's a gorgeous story. The garrison demoniac, is called. It says, you know, that he's been tied up and he's ripping the chains apart. And Jesus comes and says to him, what's your name? And the guy says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Deeply poetic response, really. Anyway, Jesus of Nazareth is cleansing this man of his affliction and the, all the demons go into these pigs and the pigs rush down and throw themselves into the water because it's happening by, by the lake. And then it says that the people of the town come and they see the man clothed and in his right mind and they are afraid. And The biggest question for me in that text is, are they afraid because of the devils or are they afraid because the man has seen? And was that man clo- was that man howling and gashing himself with stones because of devils or were the devils put into him by the way that he was treated by the community. And so when you demonise somebody... Uh, you create something in them where often you can begin to act in a way that is beneath yourself, but actually you're filled with information as well about the group of people that are demonising you. And one of the things for me in being (laughs) demonised in that way is that you get a lot of access to information about about the Christian communities that demonise you. Mm.
1: Was that story used as one of the justifications for how you were being treated? Oh,
0: absolutely. Oh, my God. So
1: it takes an enormous imaginative courage to engage with that story in the way that you are.
0: I wonder sometimes why I didn't just walk away. Um, In some ways I have, of course, you know, I don't consider myself to be a believer anymore, but I still love the texts. Um, I think it's just the love of language in me. I, I wanted to figure it out, you know, I wanted to, or not figure it out, as if I could figure it out. I wanted to figure my relationship with these stories out.
1: Podcast, broadcast, and online. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au/slash conversations. Podrig, that story in the Gospel of Mark about Jesus casting out these demons from this man, a a story that sort of had real significance for you. How does it end?
0: So what's extraordinary is that the people see this man restored and they're petrified. And they have not been petrified of him when he's apparently possessed by devils, but they're petrified of him when he's possessed by himself and when he's able to speak the truth. And they beg Jesus to go. They want him to go. They just want the whole thing. Go, 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 go. And Jesus goes, grand, I'm going. But he says to the man, go home to your friends. Now, that's a terrible thing to say because these people are not his friends. They've treated him poorly. And
1: he wants to go with Jesus, he? He wants to go he, with Jesus too.
0: And so it's extraordinary that this man is sent back to be an emissary of his own dignity among the people who had denied his dignity. And this, I think, is at the heart of a social reading of human dynamics in these texts. I'm not that interested in what biblical texts say about heaven, because what does anybody know about death and whatever comes after? I'm really interested in the psychological insight about human community that sacred texts have. And this sacred text demonstrates the capacity to say, actually, the very people who have demonized you have things to learn. And I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's good. I don't think I'd do it to somebody. But certainly this text sends a man back to be an emissary of his own dignity. And that's a fascinating thing, that the people have to face their own capacity to demonise in the face of the one who was who is himself and always was himself.
1: For you, Padraig, when the exorcisms didn't work, you were then uh, went through what, what gets called here is conversion therapy, but I think is more commonly called reparative, reparative therapy, therapy yeah. in Ireland. How did um, a conversation you were having with someone during that help you untangle yourself from that whole framework of looking at yourself?
0: Yes, yeah, somebody because I was living where I was working, and somebody said, "Look, those those exorcisms haven't worked, <laughs> the three of them." Three? Uh,
1: they, they put you through three. There were
0: three, yeah. Uh, but then the uh, they said, "Look, you should go along and see this fellow who's got who knows about theology and psychology, and so that he'd be able to cure you." The idea really was, is that if you could figure out how you got gay, that that knowledge, it's a very Gnostic imagination, that that knowledge somehow would redeem you and move you away. And, you know, there'd be healing prayer, you know, reparative therapy, curative therapy, healing prayers, called all kinds of things to fly under the radar. Um, so I was seeing him for a few years and I i had such little confidence um, in in any knowledge about theology or psychology. What did I know? I was 19 and 20. But he was trying to get me cured and he was saying to me, do you have any friends who are girls? I was like, yeah, sure. And he said, well, look at the girls who are your friends and decide which one of them is the prettiest. And next week we're going to talk about, it's crude. He said, next week we're going to talk about what kind of sex you would want to have with the prettiest of the girls. So I came back and I said to him, I, I don't want to have the kind of sex you seem to want me to have. And this is exactly what he said. And this was, this broke it. He said to me, um, your problem is language, Padraig. And he goes, You just said you don't want to have sex. Have is a selfish verb. You shouldn't want to have sex with a woman. You should want to give sex to a woman. I I mean, it's it's absolutely bonkers. But my first thought was, (laughs) you could not say that in Irish. You could not say it. Because I'm always thinking in two languages.
1: What do you mean? Why why couldn't you say it? Because
0: you don't use, you don't conjugate sex with the verb have in Irish. And I just thought, yeah, like, verbs aren't moral, like, in terms of selfish. Like, you can't say there's a, there's a have, it's a selfish verb. We all hate have. You know, <laughs> let's all go off and, you know, praise give and uh, shun have. It's absolutely ridiculous. But the how that opened for me was you can't say that in Irish. And I got up and left. Really? I, I literally got up and left. And I've been told if I left that therapeutic process that I wouldn't be able to live and work in the place where I was and i i got back just you know there it was me i was 21 and the world was bright and frightening and beautiful and brilliant and i walked around filled with joy and fear saying i am gay and it was just the joy of being able to say something in language because he had used to coach me to say i'm a heterosexual person innately who struggles with a problematic homosexual orientation my god what <coughs> terrible language And I walked around. It was a cold winter's bright day in Dublin. And I was thrilled with going, this is truth. And there was an exorcism that happened there. It really was an exorcism of the imagination to be freed into its own self. It was extraordinary, absolutely wonderful. I could tell nobody, absolutely nobody, but it was thrilling.
1: Well, after that, inner exorcism. There were, were still these years where you were trying to work out what does that mean for how you were going yeah. to live your life. The priesthood wasn't the option that you imagined it might one day be. You sort of set off travelling. You you went first to France and ended up in a monastery. So I guess I that's still a clue. was kind of thinking
0: of the priesthood. <laughs> I mean, because I like community. I like people. I like work. I like, you know, um, all of that. So I still was. I, I went and uh, stayed with a community in France for a little while.
1: And then came to Australia. What, what brought you out here?
0: Um, uh, church Based youth work. I mean, uh, God has been the ghost that's followed me everywhere, or maybe I followed the ghost to God, who knows.
1: And how did being this far away from home allow you to reinvent yourself or the way you thought of yourself? Did it?
0: A little bit, yeah. I mean, a friend of mine before I left said, You really do need therapy. <laughs> She's a good friend. And so um, I went to see a magnificent therapist, Peter Saunders, um, who's recently uh, retired. I went and saw him for three years when I lived in Melbourne and it was absolutely wonderful. So w- fantastic to have the opportunity to be able to tell truths about my life because I was still working within a religious context. And so, yeah, I wasn't in any relationships. Yeah.
1: And why did you finally decide to return
0: to Ireland? I wanted to study. I really wanted to study theology and I couldn't afford the international student rates here. So uh, so I moved back to Ireland.
1: And, and you went to Belfast. Yeah. How much of a culture shock was Belfast? Well,
0: I'm an absolute nationalist when it comes to Irishness. So, I mean, I just think Cork and Belfast and Galway and the Iron Islands. There's all kinds of different experiences of Ireland, depending as to whether you're living rurally or in a city. But, I mean, I'm obviously moving to Belfast, where there is the very particular history of the Troubles and the border and the British identities that have been there for a very long time. Uh, it was um, it was a confrontation in terms of being treated like a foreigner while you're in your own country. That was one of the things.
1: What did you see out of your window on the first night <laughs> in Belfast?
0: I was living right next to one of those uh, poorly titled peace walls that separates kind of British um, from Irish communities in West Belfast. And there was a young fella um, who was um, draped in an Irish flag on my back wall, looking up over a wall that was separating two communities. And he was singing, you know, do you have the song What Shall We Do With The Drunken Sailor here? So he was singing um, Burn, Burn, Burn Ye Bastards to the tune of What Shall We Do With The Drunken Sailor. Burn, burn, burn ye bastards. Burn, burn, burn ye bastards. I'd say he was nine or Mm -hmm. ten, you know, just there by himself. Yeah, (laughs) I just thought, my God, what are you? You know, he's telling a truth of a community in a way, you know, pumping his fist fury gone over in a, in a little song.
1: You started working with kids in a, another sort of youth group setting in West Belfast.
0: Yeah.
1: Were they keen to talk about God and have the kinds of conversations you wanted them to have?
0: Well, yeah, it was a chaplaincy um, job working with Margaret McClory at the Dallas Sal retreat centre in West Belfast. Um, uh, they were keen to talk about it, yeah, and not necessarily keen to talk about being religious. I would never make any assumption that they were but they were filled with opinions when you'd say, what do you think about the question of God? That was fascinating. And
1: what kind of things did they say that surprised you?
0: Well, one time I asked them what they thought about Jesus and one of them said, I think he's like a therapist. And I was like, what does that mean? And the young fella goes, I don't know, I think they listen. <laughs> that <laughs> I saw was it on great TV. Re- I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, I think they listen. That was a great, um, that was a lovely um, reply. One time a young person said that they thought that Jesus was like somebody who could walk on the surface of the sun and not get burnt. Mm -hmm. Everybody else would. And I thought that was a very interesting imagination. Um, Yeah, so the whole idea really was to engage young people in their friendships with each other. They could be anywhere from 11 to 17. They come in a class group. And they, they were kind of going through sacraments, some of them. So talk about that, talk about what was going on, talk about times of change as well. You know, some of them were going from primary school to secondary school. One young fellow said, uh, you were saying, uh, asking a question, what are you most looking forward to about going to secondary school? And he said, armpit hair. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was fantastic. You know, that, that was uh, what was in his mind. The most, I mean, we were thinking transition and change and being supported through the whole time. <laughs> no, <Nah>, armpit <laughs> hair. <laughs> you, you
1: joined and then ended up leading an organisation called Corrie Mila. What's its history?
0: Um, Corrie is a peace and reconciliation organisation started in 1965 um, in the north of Ireland. So a few years before the troubles broke out, really. But um, Butcher the Dogs on the Street knew that British-Irish relations were in a terrible way since partition in 1921. And so Ray Davy, an extraordinary chaplain, Presbyterian man, was aware of the tensions and thought what's needed is an opportunity for people to get together and argue well Peace is not everybody agreeing with each other or voting in the same way. Peace is the possibility of arguing well without recourse to threat and without recourse to violence. And so he had been a chaplain for a long time, so Fundraised was able to buy this property on the north coast and it became this centre where thousands of young people from the 60s onwards would come and political conferences too would be held um, it was a it was a leader like from 1981 the entire community of Corrymeela took a vote to be fully inclusive of lesbian and gay people from and 19 1981 81. that That's was before incredible. it was decriminalised in either jurisdiction of Ireland, North or South. So it was extraordinary. So when I came to hear of it in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was like, what is this place? So, <laughs>
1: What does the name mean in, in Irish?
0: Nobody totally knows. In, like in Irish, in Ireland, Scotland and Wales are the same. Every few fields will be called a townland. It's got nothing to do with a town. It's just the name that locals have given it for a long time. So Coramilla is a hundreds of years old really is a name. So somebody once suggested that it meant Hill of Harmony and they were like, oh my God, how lovely. I know a um, Peace and Reconciliation Centre on the Hill of Harmony. It probably means something more like Lumpy Crossing Place, which is much more akin to what actually peace is like, a Lumpy Crossing Place.
1: Well, the conversations around difference that happen there include, of course, Catholics and Protestants. How difficult can it be from people from those two traditions to even sit in the same room?
0: Yeah. Well, first, I, I think it's always important, and I think loads of people will know this too, that in the context of Ireland, when you talk about Catholic and Protestant, typically you're talking about Britishness and Irishness. Um, people will have had family members murdered. People will have had been threatened in their own homes. And so Catholic, Protestant really are doorways into phenomenal political experiences. Like in our family history, my my great 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 grandparents um, were starving and took themselves and their two sons to finally go to the Protestant soup kitchen because if they converted to Protestantism in the eighteen forties, in this particular soup kitchen, they could get some soup. But they starved, so and only one of their two sons survived. So this goes. This kind of shows you that what Catholic Protestants can mean within the context of long colonialism. So. Therefore, when it comes to questions to bringing Catholics and Protestants together in the north of Ireland, you really usually are talking about political violence, communities being separated, threat, um, impoverishment, in you know, urban impoverishment, ways within which paramilitary or policing activity has been a threat within a community, um, how it is that people have been recruited to those organizations as well, and how it is that communities can begin to stabilize and normalize.
1: When there's such a long an end, Powerful and often tragic history. How do you even start a conversation in the present?
0: I mean, the field of peace work is a big field. And so some people will approach it through policy. Some people will approach it through human encounter, some through education, some through um, historical recovery, etc. And the idea really is that all of the people working in the peace field can collaborate with each other. I tended to work in the human encounter side of things. What what you're doing is you're bringing people from communities who have volunteered to come together, given consent, certainly, to come together, where they're curious about meeting each other, curious about exploring their own pain and experience in the presence of somebody who comes from a different point of view. There's a desire to reconcile, to learn, to argue within the context of that. And of course, then you want to take some of those experiences and think, well, what of that could be recommended to policy for education or for government or for funding?
1: I guess there might be an impetus where people want to tell their story or share yeah. their story. Is there then a moment that you can see a transition where people are willing to hear mm. and listen to other people's stories? Yeah, it's
0: a slow journey. I mean, often. This is not something that I do that I know does or doesn't work elsewhere. But in the context of the north of Ireland, certainly, we would meet with people in what we might call separate community groups first. So first of all, all British Protestant people, and then in another group, Catholic Irish people. Just to explore their own stories, they might think, oh, we're all the same because we're in that group. And actually, they're not. You're kind of looking to, to in a certain sense, um, fracture some of those ideas to go, just because we're all Irish Catholic, we all believe the same, to go, well, oh, actually, no, there's big tension in this group too. And then with some skill and time, people come together to, to learn. And so there's all kinds of ways within which you make it safe. You you carefully explore risk. And then when things become complicated or escalated a little bit, you go, well, we've had this already. Let's begin to explore. So what you're trying to do is to look at differences and not think that differences, even difficult differences, need to automatically go to hostility and threat.
1: You've had versions of those uh, conversations with LGBTQI people and people who come from a Christianity that is fearful or opposed to that. What sort of changes have you seen out of those interactions?
0: Um, I've seen some people begin to... um, An invitation would sometimes be to say, can you ask a question to which you know you don't know the answer? And one time a man said, do you people love each other? And now I did not like the way he framed that, you people, my God. But what, what was fascinating is he, he really did, he was communicating to us that he had not been given an imagination that our relationships are ones of love. And so somebody said, well, here's my story, and here's my story, and here's my story. And what was fascinating is he said at the end, I've learned this now. Mm. So he took it. I didn't like where it began, but I was glad where it got to.
1: And it's it's wonderful that it got there for that individual. I I guess I can't help but think about... Um, the demand that makes oh, of, of people to be generous with their story yeah, and their yeah. own integrity yeah. with people who are opposed to, totally. to them. How, what do you say to, to people who are like, well, why should I have to convince someone about it? Oh, they your... shouldn't.
0: Absolutely. I would never. I mean, I, I, I convince people not to come into those rooms as LGBTQI people. You convince them not to? Not to. My God, why on earth should you learn the tools for defending your own dignity? Genuinely, I put impediments in front of people. I've got, I met so many young people younger than me when I got the job at leading Corrymeela. I was the first Catholic and the first gay person to be in that role. The BBC said, "You know, you're the highest profile religious gay person in Ireland." I was like, "Let me correct you. I'm the highest po- profile out religious gay person in Ireland. There are so many bishops in so many denominations. Who, you know, so many mother superiors. My God, I'm the lowest ranking <laughs> person." Um, but. Uh, so as a result, loads of closeted gay people heard, um, loads of closeted LGBTQI plus people heard loads of stories about this terrible organisation who appointed this reprobate. I got all these messages from these closeted people saying, are, are you safe? Can this be safe? And so many of them were like, can you help me learn how to have these conversations? And I was like, no, I want to change the world so that you don't have to have those damn conversations. I'm so bored by them. Like having to prove that you can love? My God, open your eyes and look. Look at all the love that happens in the LGBTQI plus community. It's everywhere. And so I am uninterested in having to use the tools of convincing for my own dignity. I, I'm used to it and it's okay. I've been doing it for a while. Um, I get tired of it too, but I have uh, no interest in a 25-year-old having to learn that. So some of them do insist and go, no, 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 no. Come, on, come on, come on, come on. Okay, that's fine. Um, but uh, So any time in that particular group where that story happened, the ones of us who were in there, we had all said, how are you feeling about this? Are you up for it? What's the cost for you? How's it going to go? What if it gets too much? What if you want to withdraw? All of that. We, we looked after each other.
1: There's a nice Irish phrase that you, you give
0: about, the quote about thatching. <laughs> and and the windy day is no day for thatching. Which is to say, like, you might have a plan for a day, but something will happen and you can't go about your plan. And yeah, certainly there's some days when I just think I'm tired. You know, somebody came up to me. I get it all the time. People come up with, just when you're out in the road, you know, they've heard something about you and they just go after you. And you just think, I'm tired. Mm -hmm. I've sometimes said it to people, you know, one time I was out with my parents, they were visiting me in Belfast and somebody came up to me in the market and started to go after me. And I was like, I'm here with my mum and dad. And I think you believe in stuff to do with kindness and love and family. And um, I'm trying to be with them. But they wouldn't, yeah, they wouldn't let me alone.
1: Is there a poem of yours that might be fitting for you to share here?
0: Um, there's a poem that looks at forgiveness when I think about um, some of the people who were involved in some of those exorcisms. I was sitting in a chapel once and I looked around and somebody who had been involved in some of the exorcisms was there. And I just thought, God almighty, I just felt terrible. Anyway, um, I had this lovely experience of a deep, unexpected calm that happened in that chapel. So this poem came about as a result of that many years later. It's called um, Abomination, but it does get better than the title. (laughs) (laughs) Abomination. Forgiveness? Of course you can have it if you want it. Most days I practice forgetting the hold you once had on me. Mostly it works, most days. There's a cave I found once while shaking in a corner of your chapel. When I woke there, I forgot I was in your lair. Then it came to me and with me. I make my way there from time to time. It comes with no demand. I enter through the gate with a sign that once said, Danger.
1: Thank you. And your surname means tomb, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, it, it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Padraig means nobleman, nobleman from the tombs. My God. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what choice did you have?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So
1: tell me about Poetry Unbound, the podcast that you host. What, what happens in an episode?
0: In Poetry Unbound, I take a single poem, I read it twice, and offer a reflection. It's about 10 or 12 minutes long. Um, For me, it's treating a single poem as a way to look at your own life, as a way to look at the world. It's a lens through which to look at the world and looking back at yourself as well. So looking at ways within which the the power of the poem, the dexterity and the skill of the poem can be praised and honoured, as well as then saying, here's a question it might pose to your own life. Here's a way within which it might offer a a moment for reflection for yourself.
1: So what criteria does a poem have to meet for you to feature it. What are you looking
0: for? <laughs> well, we make about 40 programmes a year. And I suppose for every programme, I probably read 10 books. So there's, there's a lot of reading of poems that happens. And, you know, there's so many good poems. So it has to be um, short enough, you know, because if you've got to read it twice in 12 minutes and also be able to offer a reflection, Like if it's a seven page poem, it's not going to work. There's basic criteria there. I suppose it has to be one that asks questions or says something about the human experience. That's the real interest. Sometimes there are poems that you might call um, straightforward. I don't even like that terminology. And other times it might be a poem that's a little bit more dense. But I like both. You know, I like poems that are a bit bewildering, as well as poems that just seem to jump off the page at you. I like poems of both kind of categories. So I'm interested in poems that say something about what it's like to be alive and that are in conversation with life.
1: You described a a kind of grounded education in poetry that you had, were lucky enough to have as a child. If someone doesn't have that, how do people find their way in, in your experience, if they haven't been raised to listen and, and read poetry?
0: what I think is extraordinary is that like, poetry has occurred in every human culture. There isn't a human culture without poetry in, in various forms, iteration and saga and story. It is in so many different ways. And so what I think is so interesting is so many people want to love poetry and maybe their education experience might have told them, here's the only way to love it. So they, they might have taken from that, oh, I don't get that. I can't remember what alliteration means. So therefore, uh, you know I'm not going to get it but yet they might turn to a poem during a moment of sadness or a moment of great joy and so I think mostly people have the tools for loving um, poems people love lyrics they learn lyrics off to songs and sing them back I was at a gig a few years ago and watched people just roar out every single word to various songs and thought this is public poetry singing lyrics back to the person who'd written it up on stage that's an experience of poetry that's happening and so poetry is, it's not just the analytic, it's the its the feeling of the words in you. And so I, I think that so many people love poems and half the time what education needs to do is to get out of the way of that love and to give people the confidence to say, why do you love it? And look at how brilliant it is <laughs> and check out here and follow your love of it, you know um that's a that's a great joy i went to a poetry gig a couple of weeks ago in melbourne with a friend of mine's son jotham who's got he's 20 he's got a great love of poetry he writes poetry um But he'd never been to a poetry gig. And so we went along and there was this guy reading and Jotham was next to me and thumped me on the shoulder and just went, yes, (laughs) you know, uh, because he was like, this is magnificent. There we were in a bar with beer, me being thumped on my shoulder by a young fella. And that was an electrifying experience to go, that's it. There's something about I feel alive. Look at what language can do. That's, I think, in so many people. I'm, that's partly why I love doing the work on Poetry and because so many people say, oh, look, school got in the way or I always wanted to, but I felt a bit embarrassed or I go to the bookshelves and I don't know what to pick off, you know, in, in a shop or in the library. Um, to go, well, here's here's a way, 50 poems, have a read, have a listen, and here's a few ways. With each one, there's the hope of learning a little bit, but it's not done as an educational project. It's done really as a thing to say, listen to these brilliant poems. You
1: say that school sometimes gets in the way of poetry, and I think you've written that religion sometimes gets in the way of God. <laughs> you've, you've certainly had your experience of the, um, the ways that that can happen. What, What's your sense now? It might be an impossible question to answer, but what's your sense of God now?
0: <laughs> I have this commitment that any time a question like that comes, which is ultimately one of the ways of asking that question too, is do you believe in God? And I always try to answer it with a story um, because I'm interested in in the tangible. I mean, what do I know about what the word God means or even what the word believe means? I, I know very little about that, but I do know what the word you means. And I suppose I'm interested in paying attention to what that could mean. So today, just arriving up in Brisbane, I met somebody who said to me, we had a conversation together a few years ago when they'd been travelling. And she said it was a time of difficulty. And she said that she had brought that difficulty. And she and I had had just a nice conversation about poetry and Australia. And when, when we'd met when she was overseas And she and I had a lovely conversation reconnecting these years later. And she said, I felt seen. And for me, it was a small conversation in one small evening a few years ago. And she has brought me back um, to a time when she felt seen, which is a lovely memory. I was profoundly moved by hearing that. And I know that there's times when I need to be seen. And that is the answer today to the question of God.
1: I've really loved speaking with you. Thank you for being our guest on Conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Podrick Otuma was my guest today and Poetry Unbound is the name of the podcast that Podrick hosts and there's a new series starting on May the 22nd. You can get it wherever you find podcasts. Poetry Unbound is also the title of the book, the anthology of 50 poems that Podrick has put together with little essays on. It's It's beautiful. Conversations is created on the lands of the Turrbal and Jagra peoples and of the Gadigal people. And a big thanks to the team this week, executive producer Carmel Rooney and producers Nicola Harrison, Meggie Morris, and Sinead Lee. I'm Sarah Kanoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Earshot is back with a new season called Follow Me. Meet a doomsday cult leader. When these chastisements happened, hell would be opened and all the devils would walk the earth. I mean, loving The Cure now die hard music fans
0: at the tender age of 52
1: (laughs) and a mother trying to keep her daughter safe and sane online restricting and banning just hasn't worked come follow earshot on the abc listen app what path can i follow to not feel this anymore